You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. In this episode, we talk to Susan Alston, who is the first full-time executive director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. In a conversation with current executive director Charles Brownstein, she discusses the trial of Mike Diana and several other of the early cases of the CBLDF. This podcast, as always, was created as part of our ongoing education program. You can learn more about the work we do at cbldf.org. With that said, I'm going to turn it over to Charles Brownstein in conversation with Susan Alston. Uh, This is Charles Brownstein, the current executive director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and today it's my privilege to talk to Susan Alston, who preceded me in this office and was the very first full-time executive director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Welcome to the CBLDF podcast, Susan. Thank you for having me. So this afternoon we're going to reflect on one of the defining cases of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund that happened 20 years ago, the Mike Diana case. Susan, tell us a little bit about your involvement with the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund at the time that you received the call that became this this uh, defining event. Yes, well, I think the case, if I recall correctly, boy, I was shocked to hear that it was 20 years ago already. It didn't seem like that long ago, but um, that's how time flies. And I had been with the um, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund maybe a couple of years by then. And we had some other cases. I think we were doing the Paul Mavridis case and maybe one other case. Um, but when this one came up, it was, it was definingly so different than any other case because Mike Diana was a probably going to be char- probably going to be the first artist who was ever uh, convicted of drawing obscenity so we had a lot at stake and it really took on a life of its own not only because of the nature of the case but also because it was in Florida yes that's right one of the things that people misperceive sometimes about the fund is that we go out and we look for cases when in fact we're a defense fund and we are on call to respond to First Amendment emergencies and one of the things that you'll understand as an executive director of that group of this group is what that call is like so tell us a bit about that moment when you first heard from Mike and what the experience was of, of getting the call and knowing that this was something that you were going to have to spring to action in? Well, it happened a little bit less urgent than that because it really went through one of our board of directors, and I've been scanning my brain to find out which one, but it was probably Dennis Kitchen that got the call first, and then uh, I got the call later. But First of all, we had Burton Joseph on as our legal advisor, who, as you re- hopefully remember, um, he was just fantastic in how he would spring to action. So when Burton learned about this case and interviewed um, the people in Florida that who were associated with it, he's the one that jumped on it like, you know what, um, he... 
he he sprung into action. He started putting all the pieces together and connected us with the lawyers that we needed to on the ACLU in Florida. He pulled a team together. He analyzed the case. He sort of set the steps in um in order so that we knew where we were going. He kept us informed. He helped us write articles. So we got the legal definitions and the legalese and the legal laws all in order. It was really a team effort. That's right. And and the work that you and Burton did actually developed the template for the way the CBLDF responds to these crises uh, up to the present day. Yeah, whenever I called Burton with a case, he... He was always right there. If he was, you know, maybe um, out of the country or in another state or even on vacation, he would always take my call or call me right back. That's right. The facts in Mike's case are peculiar in so much as he was an underground cartoonist making a zine called Boiled Angel. And in Christmas of... um, 1991, he was visited by law enforcement at his mother's home in Florida because he bore a physical resemblance to somebody they were seeking in a murder investigation. Uh, He ultimately, of course, was not the person they were looking for, but the law enforcement retained his comics and opened up an investigation where a police officer named Michael Flores posed as a fellow artist and opened up a mail exchange with Mike, uh, which ultimately led to the comics at issue in the obscenity trial being exchanged through the mail and ultimately led to Mike's arrest. What in that particular battery of facts jumped out at you and Bird at the time? That that certainly struck strikes uh, the modern person, uh, the, the current... Um, litigator as being outside the norm, and I believe it was outside the norm then as well for that kind of an exchange. What were your reactions to that fact pattern back then? Well, so we have to go back a little bit because we have to remember that in some states that district attorneys are elected, and I think uh, if I recall, Florida is one of those states, and most of our cases... Uh, back during the time when I was the executive director, seemed to have a pattern of a a district attorney being up for election and looking for quick and easy, um, you know, uh, flashy kind of sexy story that he could get a lot of headlines, he or she could get a lot of headlines about, and, and then sort of reason to a victory for their re-election. And I think this was the case in Florida as well, that this district attorney was maybe not on the verge of uh, an election, but had seen this as an opportunity to continue his platform for notoriety and um, so took this case. And so that I think he was pretty much set up. So I think Part of what had happened when he was thought to be the serial killer was that uh, perhaps you know some of Mike's artwork was discovered at that time, if I recall, and that sort of led down the path to his eventual arrest for drawing him. And I think he was 
It was also, he was um, charged with advertising and distributing obscenity, but the advertising charge was eventually dropped. Right. So tell me about the process of preparing for court once the board had determined that this was a case we had to defend. Well, from the CBL, CBLDF's point of view, all we needed to do was raise money. Burton and the lawyers, ACL lawyers and the lawyers that we hired in Florida to defend Mike, they did it all. I mean, that's their profession, and they do it, um, you know, very well. So what happens at the CBLDF and is that we need to get the word out. Um, this was just about the time, you know, the Internet was starting to get a lot more activity. We I think we might have had the beginnings of a website by then, but pretty much we were still um, in print. So we, you know, published, published um, our newsletters. We got the word out through, you know, comic book conventions and comic book stores. Uh, we made sure that the comic book Per, um, population and audience was aware of what was going on. Um, magazines such as, well, for instance, Playboy wrote an article about it, as did the, the Comics Journal. Um, there was a lot of um, interest in this case because, it, again, we go back to he would eventually become the first American artist to be convicted of drawing obscenity. What was the response within the community as you were spreading the word? Mike uh, certainly created content that was confrontational and was outside the visual norm at the time, although today his artwork would certainly be right at home with Adult Swim and several other uh, popular, popular forms. What was the sense that you received going into the community and talking about this case and Mike's work? Were you met with people that were opposed to you, and if so, how? The majority of the reaction was, you know, go get them, you know, you know put these sensors, you know, put them down, get them out of our, our world. Um, you know, there was some a little pushback, but very little, because if you've ever uh, looked at Boiled Angel, it, it is very disturbing, but like Michael always said from the very beginning, and it goes back prior even to Boiled Angel, he was always just trying to show, put a mirror up to society and show how awful parts of our society were, and he just, according to him, was just drawing pictures of the things that he read about in, you know, newspapers, heard in the regular press, um, and he just showed what it might have looked like, and he, it was pretty grotesque. Um, when I would go out to comic shows, conferences, um, sometimes I went to the American Booksellers Association and represented the CBLDF um, at those gatherings. The response was overwhelmingly in favor of um, fighting the censors. Um, we were able to raise a lot of money. Um, we, I think, we didn't um, have uh, any debt through Mike Diana's case. I think the money came in pretty regularly, um, and we never had to go into our coffers to pay for his case because the. The money, the donation, the commitment from the comic book community 
was always there. They knew what was at stake. So take us up to the moment that the case went to the courtroom. Burton and uh, Luke uh, Lyro, the local counsel, had been doing their job as professionals, and they walked in and were faced against the ADA, Stuart Bagish, who argued that Diana's work was obscene beyond the pale. Were you, first of all, were you at the trial? No, I was not. Okay. We, didn't, we didn't feel the need for the expense for me to go down. Okay, uh, so, so let's go up to the trial, and the arguments are being deployed on both sides. Can you characterize what the Legal Defense Fund's case was walking into the courtroom and what it was that was our job to prove? Our job was to prove that under the First Amendment that Michael had the the right to um, write and tell and draw his stories or his point of view. And that was the basis of the argument. Um, I think the, the, the legal team, you know, came up with, you know, other areas that they could defend him on. Um, but each time the, the prosecution really used, um, like, tactics of, you know, how his artwork and how his words were going to corrupt other people, especially young children, when in, actual, in reality none of his books were ever meant to be seen by young children. And Mike, in fact, testified for more than three hours explaining his work to the jury. And despite this, there was, there was a guilty verdict that came back. What kind of a blow was this uh, in the community when that word spread? Well, it was mixed. I think, you know, people who weren't familiar with um, Florida, the atmosphere in Florida about um, obscenity, it's, you know, it's very much part, especially Pinellas County is, you know, what we would always refer to as the the belt buckle of the Bible belt of um, the South. And they had very strong commitments to, you know, being to the purity of their their communities, keeping everything um, hidden and above, above board, so to speak. Um, so there was, there was mixed reaction. I think, you know, people like, that lived in liberal states such as Massachusetts, where I'm from, were just mortified and shocked that anybody could be convicted of, you know, drawing obscenity, especially um, and that, at that time. And then there were those people that would just shake their head and say, well, that's Florida for you. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that was how, what the reaction was. And so Mike was held in jail for four days uh, until sentencing without bail, which was a horrible and humiliating experience for him. And when he came back, it was, um, it was found that he was sentenced to three years of supervised probation, a $3,000 fine, $1,000 for each count, more than 1,200 hours of community service, and ordered to avoid contact with minors. But... 
the most shocking element of the sentence is that Mike was prohibited from drawing or creating artwork in his own home on the grounds that he was not allowed to create new obscene material. That's rather unprecedented, yes? Well, especially when you take it further that the uh, his probation officers and law enforcement officials um, were entitled to go into his home at any time to be sure he wasn't drawing or reading or performing, uh, you know, any obscenity or anything that they would perceive to be obscenity at any time without notice, which was, you know, an intrusion on his, you know, other rights um, as a U.S. citizen. And the other thing that you should know about Mike, Mike is a very meek, mild um, personality. He was, you know, very kind of shy. Um, so, you know, it, he, it wasn't as if that, you know, he was in court or he was out there, um, you know, flashing his work around, um, you know, up and down the streets and being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, just being, you know, in everybody's face about what he was doing. You know, he, he was just, you know, this, this quiet kid who, you know, had a history of, um, you know, seeing the ugly part of our society. And when you go back and you look at Mike's history, you know, of going to church and, and listening to the preacher say, you know, no matter what you do, you're damned to go to hell. Um, you know, these, all of these things set him up for, you know, for the artwork and the writings that he would be attracted to as um, a young adult. Um, so his sentencing, you know, to take it, you know, some of what you said, he was not allowed to be in the company of anybody under, I think, was it 18 or 16? 18. 18. And he worked in a convenience store. So Mike would tell me stories that when he was at work, you know, if anybody under 18 came in the store, he would have to go in the back room and get somebody else to come out and ring up the order while he stayed in the back room. And so there had to be this sort of, you know, you know somebody had to sort of evaluate the age of everybody coming into the store and whether or not Mike had to go into the back room. Um, another aspect of his punishment was that he had to get psychiatric evaluation at his own expense and so he you know he was referred to a psychiatrist psychologist and went to see her and it was supposed to you know be a hundred dollars an hour and after three hours you know he he left her office and but later got a bill for i think thirteen hundred dollars and that was because um she said that uh, she had to read his books <laughs> in order to treat him, and that you know was another seven hours. So um, I don't think he ever paid that bill, and we—I don't think the CBLDF did. Um, his, some of his, you know, his sentencing was really way out there, and that I think was um, the topic of what was it? Um, what show did a story on him? I can't remember now. A news program. I think it was Good Morning know, America. Or 2020. It was actually a, one of those evening news stories, but maybe it was Good Morning America. But some um, news agency did a, a film, and they um, 
they talked about you know the absurdity of some of his sentencing um, and I know his community service you know I found that to be com completely absurd and, and that's when I immediately jumped in and said well you know Michael's going to do his community service with the CBLDF I thought that was just unfair <laughs> and so I would bring him um, and fly him even on occasion when you know, we'd have to get permission to leave Florida, though, um, to conventions and conferences where you know, he would, you know, talk about his ordeal. And, you know, then we started um, proceedings, but we went through to the Supreme Court of Florida, and, you know, we uh, submitted amicus briefs, and um, everything was either ignored or denied and um, the Supreme Court of Florida uh, denied to hear his and, and endorsed his conviction at which point we then decided that we were going to take his case to the Supreme Court of the United States which then took everything to a whole new level And so speak to me about that process and the issues that, that were posed and, and the ultimate result Yes, so um, the lawyers, you know, Burton's or, you know, coordinated this and orchestrated everything in the, along with the ACLU. And um, it was quite an interesting procedure from the point of view of, of what the CBLDF had to do is we needed to raise the money, of course, to keep, continue paying the legal fees. But one of the things that I was taken back by is that you had to prepare the the petition um, for the Supreme Court and it had to be on um, certain paper it had to be uh, a certain size that was really out of the ordinary to the typical consumer it had to be a certain color in a certain way and had to be bound a certain way you needed to have I think 42 copies and at that time and um, when, when we did that, it, I remember it cost $4,000 to produce those 42 copies of the submission to the Supreme Court of the United States. And as I recall, um, we never, it never even, it got presented but it never made it to um, the Supreme Court refused to hear it because they had already done a, a First Amendment case um, in that session. So they didn't want to, um, to take on another one. Yeah, and, and, and that sets the case up to stand is a huge miscarriage of justice that remains one of the defining obscenity cases of the last 50 years. Uh, Mike, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, is the first American artist to be convicted under obscenity charges. What kinds of precedent concerns did that create within the creative and publishing communities at the time that you were, you were in this desk managing this process? Well, of course, everybody was outraged. Um, especially on everybody that was had been following the case and really thought that the um, First Amendment would prevail, and when it didn't, um, you know, it was almost 
as if you know people were looking over their shoulder and go, "Well, what just happened? <laughs> how could this? How could this be?" And then when the uh, Supreme Court of the United States refused to hear it, it was again like, "But, but don't you don't you realize that this sets a precedent that this is the first American artist ever to be?" convicted of obscenity and his conviction is absurd uh, and his sentencing I should say and it was like our our population our audience got it they were outraged Um, and certain other uh, publications and writers were too but I guess what I was shocked most about was how the mainstream uh, media, you know, weren't up in arms about it. That it was, oh, okay, you know, another day, you know, what are we going to go on to? It was pretty much within our own audience that the outrage um, could be heard and went on and on and lasted for quite a while. And I think the fact that we're celebrating or acknowledging the 20th anniversary of this is. Um, is pertinent because it means that you know we're we're looking at it again. Here we are, 20 years later, and Mike is still the only American artist ever to be convicted of drawing obscenity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And looking at the way we mobilize to fight censorship today, we we can take for granted just how robust the network of people that are supportive of of our issues are. I mean, look at you know Neil Gaiman, who was on the board at the time, and his you know, several million uh, Twitter followers. You know, if that network had come to bear while Mike's case was at the trial level, we might have seen a different result, absolutely. No, I agree completely. And and I I don't know what I could have done. If I, we just, I think we could have rallied more. I just, I think that people just thought it, it really wouldn't happen. They really wouldn't be convicted because it's the First Amendment. That's right. And, and so people just thought, you know, we were going to go in and, and do the, the due diligence and everything was going to be fine and we were going to win because we had won a lot of our other cases. And, you know, and so why would it be any different in Florida than it was in Texas or California or wherever? It's, you know, I think we were complacent a little bit, not just the CBLDF, but, you know, our, the comic book audience. And it's a valuable lesson to this day because when you talk about the Mike Diana case, there is a sense that how could this possibly have happened in the United States? And I think it is uh, nobody actually went to the idea that, geez, maybe a jury actually would convict in this in this fact set. You're completely correct, and my recollection is. In you know when I the CBLDF at that time was located in Western Massachusetts, where we're surrounded by you know Mount Holyoke College, Smith College, you know Harvard is a hundred miles to our east, and Yale is a hundred miles to our south, and you know we have you know a, a strong educational and, and liberal um, population, and you know in talking with people that I. You know, socialize with or I work with, they just were astounded that, you know, that this case could have even gone to court. So, um, 
So it, it stands. If any, if anything good came out of it, is that we're still talking about it, and that you know, hopefully it'll never happen again, and we can you know use the the experience of the Mike Diana case to hopefully thwart any future attempts at censorship. Having managed a few cases in the criminal level um, for the fund, I think that it's very easy for people to wrap their arms around the monetary costs of it, but the human cost that the defendant undergoes is probably the most severe. Can you speak a bit about the evolution that you experienced um, in dealing with Mike over that period? Could you talk about the toll that you observed this taking on him through the process? Well, clearly, Mike... It took on the burden of mo- almost all of the um, the negative um, comments and the negative press, and then living in his own community, taking on um, what the, his local community had to dish out to him, and the humiliation that I'm sure that you know his family felt. Um, but I have to say, because of his age and because of the way he felt, um, you know, I sense that he really held up really well. I mean, he was a, a kid that was, you know, sort of hidden in Pinellas County, and then all of a sudden he's getting all of this attention. And, um, you know, so I think it, it was balanced. As much as he was being um, beaten up by his local community, the comic book community was behind him 100%. So he, he was getting what he needed to keep his, um, his attitude and his uh, perseverance up there um, in, the, in the wake of what was going on in you know, his own neighborhood. Um, but I would say that looking at other cases that we had, like the Paul Mavridis case, even though the First Amendment issue was less about obscenity and more about um, you know, First Amendment publishing, um, you know, he, what he experienced, I experienced with him and what he, watching what he was experiencing, he was definitely, um, over the years, just drawn down. He couldn't work. He was depressed. You know, he was angry. Um, and then there were the, the, the comic shop owners who, whose livelihoods were threatened. I mean, if it hadn't been for the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund paying their legal fees, you know, their shops would have been closed and they, you know, their homes would have been foreclosed upon and their families might have had um, a financial uh, setback that they might not have recovered from. So I've always felt good about the work that we did and the money that we raised that helped people, you know, carry on with their lives, even even the shop owners, even though perhaps their sales would go down, at least they didn't have the burden of um, not being able to, um, not, not having their shop closed, and that would have been even more devastating. And then it would have, you know, it would have affected the comic book community in the whole. There would be one less outlet, you know, to buy the books that you wanted to buy. Uh, last question, and um, is more of a general question, which is, you set the template, you and Dennis and Bert, for what the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund 
would become. What are your thoughts on the organization today, and what would you like to say to our supporters that are here because of the foundation work that you and uh, the board at the time had built? I am really proud of um, how the CBLDF has um, transitioned over the years. It seems um, that you have taken it uh, to the, the educational level, going out and actually educating the public about the First Amendment and uh, about reading and how reading um, books uh, really opens the mind and allows people to accept and be more tolerant. Um, that is something that at the time when I was the executive director, you know, we'd always talked about, but we just didn't have the staff and we didn't, and we were, to be perfectly honest, we were always fighting so many cases, it seemed like we could never come up for air um, to do that kind of work. So um, I'm glad to see that there have been fewer cases. Um, in the past few years, which has then uh, thus allowed you to, you know, do the education that's necessary to hopefully circumvent, you know, future attacks on the comic book um, through First Amendment rights attacks. I'd just like to say one more thing um, <laughs> about fundraising and you know, what you say about needing the funds to fight the good fight. Um, for anybody who's going to be listening to this, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund has always uh, used their money wisely um, to prevent and to bring First Amendment issues to the forefront of the audience. So, you know, if any of the people that are listening to this, you know, have a philanthropic thread running through their tapestry, I would completely. Um, endorse that you get onto the CBLDF website and make a donation or join as a member because um, they do a good job and there's nobody else out there standing up for the comic book industry in this area. I mean, there are other First Amendment right organizations, but this is the one that is true to the comic book audience industry, and family. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on the CBLDF podcast. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on listeners like yourself to continue doing the things that we do. For more information about that work, you can visit cbldf.org. That's also the best place to go if you want to donate. We appreciate any and all donations and memberships. This podcast and all of our education work is made possible not only with the support of listeners like yourself, but also with a grant from the Gaiman Foundation. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Alex Cox. I produced and edited this episode of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and check back next month for more. Thank you very much for listening.